Hi everyone, welcome back to Historical Friction, a podcast about retelling the past and reframing the present through pop culture and fiction. I'm Alice, and we're still on the pirates this week. We watched another version of Treasure Island. This one is a little different to the last. It's Muppets Treasure Island. It's not great, but it is an experience. This episode also features Sarah's introduction to the Muppets for the first time, which is truly weird, and Abigail's stunning impersonations of several of the characters. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at History Friction and on Patreon at Historical Friction. We really appreciate any support that you want to give us and any anything that you want to do to help us keep making the show, whether that's backing us on Patreon or simply recommending us to your friends and liking our tweets and things like that. We will be taking a little bit of a break in September. For those of you who are not on our Patreon newsletter, I'm moving, Sarah's just moved, Helen and Abigail are in the depths of PhD stuff, so everything is a little intense right now and we'll hopefully be back as soon as possible, but you might not see us around as much over the coming weeks. This episode is about a kid's film, but it's a kid's film of the 90s, and in some cases that means things are a little dark and weird. This isn't so much dark and weird as straight up gross and racist at times. There are representations of indigenous people that are really deeply unpleasant, and we talked a little bit about the history of appropriation and stereotyping that goes into a film like this one. I was joking in the episode about how this was the show where we had to cancel the Muppets. We're not cancelling the Muppets, but we are approaching them with a critical lens. And yeah, hope you enjoy. Hi everyone, welcome back to Historical Friction. I am Alice, and I really, like, an embarrassing amount understand Miss Piggy. I think she's an Aries. <laughs> and I really like that is something that I feel very deeply in my soul. I'm Abigail. And I love Kermit the Frog, to the point that I wrote a school paper about him when I was 14. And about how if I could meet anybody living, dead, fictional, non-fictional in the world, the one person I would want to meet was Kermit the Frog. And I stand by that. <laughs> I am Helen on all levels except physical. I am a parrot in the body of a lobster in the form of a Muppet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm Sarah, and this is my first encounter with the Muppets, and I don't understand any of these references. (laughs) (laughs) For listeners at home, Sarah looks genuinely terrified. Like, the expression on her face is so bewildered. It's like she has entered a whole new universe. I'm so excited for her reactions in this episode. (laughs) If you can't tell, we watched Muppet Treasure Island, which is a 1996 experience that loosely adapts Treasure Island, as we discussed on our previous episode, Uh, except this time half the characters are Muppets and, you know, it's a vibe. Obviously, there are some people in the world who don't know what the Muppets are. I absolutely took for granted that everyone did until Sarah said that she had no idea what they were. Muppets are puppets, but they mostly look like animals. Some of them are kind of humanoid. I just, I I can't explain the Muppets. Yeah, like I knew what they were, like I knew that the Muppets existed. I'm not, like, I've lived inside (laughs) for my entire life. Um, but I didn't know that there were humans in it, so one of my notes from was like, oh, what's, what, what are all these humans? Is that Billy Connolly? What the fuck? And then also, like, all the singing, I just wasn't prepared for that. Yeah, the, the Muppets began, I believe, in 1955 or thereabouts uh, as a Jim Henson brainchild. Jim Henson invented the Muppets. He was a very cool puppeteer. Um, he died like, in... Cool puppeteer is <laughs> not... That's an oxymoron right there. No, not with Jim Henson. He's literally a cool puppeteer. Very and cool. so are all the other Muppet performers. Um, Dave Goulds, I believe, does Gonzo. And there was a guy named Jerry Nelson who did a lot. Like, I, lo- I love the Muppets. There's Frank Oz um, as well as the other kind of classic. Frank so it's Oz. like Henson and Oz yeah. are the sort of two main yeah. brains behind the Muppets. Yeah, and they voiced Kermit and Piggy initially. So Frank Oz did Piggy and Jim Henson did Kermit. But not for this film, because Jim Henson had died. So Steve Whitmire is doing Kermit for this film. 
So the Muppets exist as a variety show on TV in the 70s as well, which is truly incredible. And like, if you haven't seen the original Muppet show, like if you've just seen the films, Mm -hmm. the Muppet show is just absolutely a work of genius. Every episode has a real famous celebrity guest and they will come on and interact with these puppets. There'll be like little skits and things like that. It's basically SNL in terms of its format, but it's puppets and it's it's truly brilliant. There are, I think, like five seasons of it from the 70s. It is the most incredible experience. And all of these like genuinely famous, respected celebrities and actors went on the show and like flirted with puppets. It's it's just brilliant. I mean, it does sound better yeah. than SNL, which is... The original Muppets have this kind of sketch format and then they start to develop films and things like that. I think the most famous one is, without a doubt, The Muppet Christmas Carol, which is yes, like yeah. actually a flawless work of art. Mm-hmm. Muppet Treasure Island is trying to capture that same spark, but yeah. the source material doesn't quite work as well. The characters don't quite translate as nicely. It doesn't have the same charisma as The Christmas Carol. It's just, it's the vibes are off. Yeah, so I think this is Disney's fault. Um, so Jim Henson, as I said, created the Muppets. He, it was Jim Henson's, you know, Muppet factory and Frank Oz was a big part of it and all the Muppet performers. But Disney was trying to, did buy out the Muppets in night in the early 1990s. And Frank Oz has gone on record in several interviews saying that he thinks that the Disney buyout of the Muppets is what ultimately killed Jim Henson. You know, he didn't die of a Disney buyout. He died of like, I think a meningitis kind of virus. I don't exactly remember, but he was tired. He was overworked. He, according to Frank Oz, was a quote, real artist and not a dealer. And this Disney buyout was making him sort of sell the soul of the Muppets. And he didn't want to do that. So he died in 1990. And The Muppet Christmas Carol is the first Muppet film to come out under Disney. And it also is in memory to Jim Henson and to Richard Hunt, who was another Muppet performer who had died. And I think that And I believe it was directed by Brian Henson, who was Jim Henson's son, if I'm not mistaken. And so I think that the Muppet Christmas Carol had all this heart because it was in memory to these people that had created the Muppets, that had created this world. And I think they were allowed to do a little bit more what they wanted. And it kind of does take, like Alice was saying, how they would have a real human figure in the sketch show, a special celebrity guest each time. And they had a few celebrity guests in their earlier movies, like Great Muppet Caper and the Muppet Movie. And so they got Michael Caine to be Scrooge, playing a very straight Scrooge against the Muppet actors. And it really was magical. And I think it might have been the first time that the Muppets tried to adapt a piece of literature as well. But I think that Disney, I don't know exactly the history of how Muppet Treasure Island came to be, but my assumption would be that Disney wanted, like Alice said, to recapture Christmas Carol and thought, why not do Treasure Island, which is already such a baked-in film to the Disney DNA, having been the first live-action Disney film. So let's do this, but with Muppets. And it's a disaster. Is this why there are so many jokes that are kind of making digs at Disney commercialism in this film? Most likely. This was my favourite part of the film as a whole, was that Muppet Treasure Island has a lot of fourth wall breaks that remind us how ridiculous everything is. And as I will go on to say, like I think this is the thing that redeems the film for me, is like when it takes you out of this ridiculous high-level action to just say, like, oh, this is a film, it just really makes me chuckle. But there's there's sort of one of, like, what's next? Uh, an amusement park themed around a mouse? And there's another <laughs> one that's like, and if you look on your left, you will see the movie set of the popular uh, Disney production Muppets Treasure Island. And it's quite self-referential. So I'm just wondering if in the sort of like scripting and shooting of that. Um, The Disney Muppets conflict is kind of on display within the script. Yeah, I noticed that as well, because the characters, so two of the Muppet characters, the kind of humanoid Muppets, are Statler and Waldorf. 
they are always in the audience at the Muppet Show. They're the kind of hecklers. They're the grumpy old men who just bitch about everything and complain about everything. And they're always complaining about how bad the show is and laughing at their own jokes and things like that. But there were several jokes from them and other characters in this film about how bad the script was <laughs> and how they couldn't save the movie. And Tim Curry, who's the kind of human lead in this at one point, is like, you know, this is my only number. I've got to make the most of it and things like that. <laughs> and it's got a greater kind of like resentment to it than the usual silly little fourth wall breaks. It feels a little bit bitter. Mm -hmm. It does. Yeah, the, the line where somebody said, like, I would like to get my hands on whoever wrote the script or whatever, I was like, same, actually. There's also a bizarre reference to Kissinger. I don't know if anyone else picked up on Oh my god, I, I made a note that. of this too. I was like, what is happening there? What's the story? Because I feel like there was some kind of meta-narrative happening there that I wasn't entirely, like, picking up on, but it was so... It was very, very 1990s reference there. What, what was the reference? I was befuddled. So right at the beginning, this Muppets Treasure Island follows the plot of Treasure Island. There are some deviations that we will talk about, but at the beginning when Billy Bones is dying and Jim Hawkins and in this case also Gonzo the Great and Rizzo the Rat are sorting through his stuff trying to find the treasure chest. They keep pulling out weird things and throwing them around. And one of the things that they pull out is Kissinger's like book on diplomacy <laughs> and it's just kind of like this weird passing gag and I was also kind of like yeah what is going on here this seems like a reference to like US commercial imperialism maybe like was that a really popular best-selling book in 1996 that everyone would be like ha 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 I, I too have read Kissinger's diplomacy and I know what this is in reference to Kissinger doesn't seem like somebody that the Muppets would be that into though I gotta be honest I think like <laughs> Like, as, in as much as I could interpret that without having read Kissinger's Diplomacy, <laughs> which I very much have not done, like, I no, think that they either. were kind of saying, like, they were casting him in with the lot of the pirates, essentially, and saying, like, it's ironical that Billy Bones is reading this book because he is a vicious pirate. Mm, I like yeah, that. I like that. That I feels, like feels muppety to me. It does. So... Yeah. Where, the, where do we even start? I mean, I guess we can say this is a movie musical, yes. much like the classic, quote unquote, classic animated films of the Disney Renaissance and the Muppet Christmas Carol. They try to replicate that magic by having Gonzo and Rizzo once more as sort of our, our audience main people that we can relate to. Um, so Gonzo and Rizzo are again, they're kind of narrating what's going on for us in a way, not as literally as they did in Christmas Carol. And it begins with a song that is very Broadway musical-like. There are multiple songs throughout this that are supposed to be big musical numbers. Some of them are catchy, some of them are horrible, some of them are catchy and horrible. And it, it wow, there's so much here. The, like, there's a lot of tiki references that feel uh, really problematic. They do not handle disability well in this film at all. It's very cringe. I don't even, I don't even know. Okay, okay, let's go through chronologically then, because there's just so much here. The first thing I would like to say is that when Blind Pew appears, there's a joke about like a weird old blind fiend. And I think it's Rizzo says, I think they prefer visually challenged fiend. I'm and that was so the point when in my notes I was like, that. oh geez, we're uh, gonna have to cancel Yeah, at this it. point I was like, why have they done this to me? I'm paying to see this. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah that, that whole portrayal with that puppet character um, as as blind pew when he's fumbling around not being able to catch anyone uh and the joke is mm. that he's doing this because he's blind it's just so i don't know it made me feel very bad inside of my body like yeah and i think that that's representative of something because when we watched the 1950s version like it's still very much a children's film the original story is very much marketed towards children and the adaptations and narratives around Treasure Island tend to be focused on kids. But what makes for a kid's film in the 1950s includes your 12-year-old protagonist shooting a man in self-defense. Yeah, there's fully, like, yeah. a bloodshot to the head in the 1950s exactly. Treasure Island. Exactly. And that's in the book as well. 
But yeah. in the 90s, you know, when you've got puppets, you've got to make it much more lighthearted. And it's this kind of like, I think it's an, a tacit acknowledgement of the fact that Pew is actually a really frightening character. Mm-hmm. And so in order to try and cancel that out, they make him absurd and grotesque and silly and he grabs Jim Hawkins and assumes that he's a girl because he's got this squeaky little voice and the most truly astonishing mullet and so it's it's this kind of way of like belittling the character and undermining him but it takes out the threat and it takes out like a lot of the zing of the original is the fact that there's like actual stakes here I think that's the problem and I think this is where they went wrong and couldn't capture the magic of Christmas Carol is that Christmas Carol left in the scary bits when, I mean, they cut some of the bits with the ghost of Christmas future, having the children under his cloak and things like that. Um, but the ghost of Christmas future and Christmas Carol is still scary. And Gonzo and Rizzo even say, Ooh, this part's scary. We're going to bow out. And so they don't have the Muppets, in their undercutting the seriousness of these moments. And Treasure Island, 100%, they undercut any kind of heart or soul to either the story or to the Muppets themselves. Like, neither the Muppets nor the story have a soul. (laughs) Something that I really liked about this adaptation was that they gave a lot more time, as the book does, to the character of Billy Bones. But when Mm -hmm. Billy Bones played in perfect chef kiss no-notes, casting choice by Billy Connolly when Billy Bones dies uh, Gonzo and Rizzo turn to the camera and they say he died I thought this was supposed to be a kids movie and it it was just like such an unnecessary moment because Connolly knows the audience that he's playing to and so he dies in the most pantomimed exaggerated silly way possible to be like the character is going off screen now but this is not a traumatic death. Don't be scared, little kids. You know, he goes, oh, and his eyes roll everywhere and he (laughs) howls at the moon. And it's just like some awesome Billy Connolly showboating, basically. So it didn't need that fourth wall break to kind of be like, well, ha, we self-referentially know that we're making this for kids and kids don't know what death is. Like, kids can conceptualise on-screen death. Like, there's even been, like, studies about it. So... That was really not needed. There's also then the immediate aftermath of that. They're like, we're in a room with a dead guy and they all freak out. (laughs) Yeah. And that's weird, but it kind of like works for the characters who are talking about all these adventures that they're going to go on and how excited they are to see the world. And they're actually just like kids. Mm. And so in a way that sort of worked, but it also felt really like, eh, kind of heavy handed, not really like the joke doesn't quite land in the way that it's clearly intended to. It's just a bit of a bummer. I just want to acknowledge, too, the strangeness of the fact that they cast uh, Gonzo and Rizzo as Jim Hawkins' adopted brothers. (laughs) And they make repeated, very strange jokes about the fact that it's weird that he's a human being with the one adopted brother who's a rat and one adopted brother who's a dot 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 question mark whatever and again that was like really irksome to me because again like I think it's not giving kids enough credit like part of the reason why Muppets Christmas Carol works so well is that it's deadpan in its acceptance of the fact that Muppets are a part of the human universe Bob Cratchit Mm -hmm. is a frog yeah Yeah, that's that's it and that's that's the way it is and it's fine but this movie for some reason they were leaning really heavily on like the weirdness of Muppets interacting with human beings and it was so distracting I have a question, that rat creature that's always eating, is that like a Muppet, is that like a thing that he does across all adaptations or is that something that they made up for this yeah, yeah that's just his thing Yeah. <laughs> if that's the case, why did they not cast Rizzo as Ben Gunn that would have been Good. amazing See, okay, yeah, this is something I kept thinking about throughout. I was like, they did not do the casting the way they should have in this in this film. And I get why they wanted to put Rizzo and Gonzo together, because those two Muppeteers work really well together and have a really great dynamic. I know way too much about Muppets. But um, yeah, I was thinking like that the piggy casting which we haven't she is been gone in this except she's benjamina and she is an ex of kermit and it's a whole deal that i'm sure we'll get into later but i was just thinking why didn't they make 
Piggy into Jim Hawkins' mother because they get rid of his mother and they make him sort of like working, I don't know, as an indentured servant or something to a character played by Jennifer Saunders. And she looks exactly like, like in terms of stylization, in terms of her characterization, she's exactly like Madame Ternardier in Les Mis in the musical. Like she's brash, she looks really greasy, she they she keeps like sort of beating up the pirates that come and are burning the Admiral Benbow and Gonzo and uh, Jim and Rizzo keep looking at each other and being like, how does she do it? And all this kind of stuff. They make that joke like 10 times. And I was like, why wasn't this character Piggy? Because Piggy throughout the Muppets is kind of a violent female character. She, her sort of trademark is being like, hi, yeah. And then like, you know, beating up whoever. And I was like, this could have been a really great character to have Piggy being Jem's mother. And like in Christmas Carol, they wouldn't have to acknowledge, it's weird, your mom's a pig. They could have just let it be. And then... If they wanted to do a Kermit Piggy romance, maybe have Jim have like a little picture of his mom in a locket or something and have Kermit be like, wow, Jim, that's your mother. I knew her once upon a time. Instead of being like, I knew your father. Have it be like, I knew your mother. And then at the end, have them like get together and her be like, Smalley. And he could be like, mm, Piggy. And it would be great. Yeah. And I was like, this, why didn't they just fix this casting? Okay, sorry, that was a yeah. Can we just take a second for Abigail's absolutely spot on imitations of Kermit and Piggy? Yeah, can we just. Truly flawless. Can we really love them? this entire episode with just having Abigail doing all the voices? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, that, and that's like an example where there was a kind of wasted cameo, right? Like, B- Billy Connolly does a fucking great job as Billy Bones, just being a total weirdo and completely hamming it up. Jennifer Saunders as Mrs. Bloveridge or whatever they call her. Firstly, she's in a fat suit. Secondly, Mm. she's such a wasted actor. Like Jennifer Saunders is a brilliant comic actress. And in this, she just sort of doesn't do anything. It's a waste of the casting. They could have done something much funnier with her. She's also just Mm -hmm. such a tiny part. It feels really like, eh, what's the point? You know, you get get an actor wanting a cameo sort of thing, and that's fine. But it doesn't work here, and it actually, like, in my opinion, actively undermines a lot of the plot that happens later. It just feels really, like, dead. And given that, um, and I think we should talk about this in detail, but, like, given that Muppets Treasure Island deviates substantially from the original Robert Louis Stevenson plot, there was, like, if they wanted to do, like, mad cameos... Why not have like a French and Saunders and Bonnie um female pirate situation oh my on deck? Like that would have been so fun. But there was exactly. like a weird ratio of human beings to Muppets in this adaptation, I think. Like they really leaned on like the opportunity to like do as much Muppeteering as possible with the crew and do all manner of sort of evil pirate name puns and, and things like that. And yeah, I, I I just kept thinking, like, all of the human characters in it were, like, engulfed by Muppets at all points. They were overpowered. And even, like, a charismatic character like John Silver, played by Tim Curry... Tim motherfucking Curry. <laughs> Tim motherfucking Curry is swamped by Muppets at all turns, and it strangely robs him of some of his significance, I think. Uh, on that note, I feel like with some of the questionable casting. Justice for Fozzie Bear. Fozzie's normally like such a nice, fun, he's the silly one, Kermit's the straight man, and Fozzie's the kind of like weird, chaotic, like, ha, whatever, I'm I'm just here, I'm having a great time. Waka waka. Waka waka. And he's got this like weird bit where he has a man called Mr. Bimbo who lives in his finger. And it was like, just, it was really boring. So that wasn't like a thing that happens in the Muppets. That was something they made up for this. No. 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 Yeah. I, that is ludicrous because I am not a big Muppets head. I've seen Muppets Christmas Carol, but that is it pretty much. And I just assumed like, oh, Fozzie Bear must have this Mr. Bimbo thing. That must be a thing that he does. But they literally, so they cast Fozzie as Squire Trelawney, which I think is 
sensible, I guess, because yeah. Trelawney is a ridiculous character. But they just gave him the bimbo thing because they could. Every time he was on screen, I was irritated by it. <laughs> yeah, my note is Trelawney equals Fozzie. Mr. Bimbo in his finger? <laughs> <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't add anything. It didn't do anything. It was just very like, oh yeah, I guess we're just doing something for the fun of it. And it... it mm. Yeah, I was really frustrated by that. Having said that, there was one brilliant bit of casting, and that was having Sam the Eagle as Arrow. That was flawless. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that was very funny. Should we talk about one of the major um, plot deviations then? Because as we discussed mm. in the previous episode on 1950 Treasure Island, it is a pretty serious turn in the plot of the original that the moment when Mr. Arrow is murdered is kind of when things get dark for our characters. Muppets went a different direction and chose to let Mr. Arrow live and also become the deus ex machina that saves the day because he is so concerned with um, health and safety of his lifeboats that he just yeets himself away onto the open ocean <laughs> and then eventually happens to row himself onto the island and is able to rescue the characters. So that does a huge mess around for the whole plot of Treasure Island. I did like that at least they still had Long John Silver tricking him into going overboard. So it's not Long John Silver getting him drunk and murdering him, basically, but it is Long John Silver using his charisma and his manipulative charm to say, we need to test these lifeboats. You know, you don't want bad lifeboats and Sam Eagle being Sam Eagle and being like, oh yeah, we got to test the lifeboats. Um, so I did I did appreciate that at least like Long John Silver was in some way involved in getting Arrow off the ship. In, in a sort of mildly treacherous way. But yeah, the the, the distinct lack of murder in this <laughs> made it very different from the source material. I can see yeah. why they didn't want to murder a beloved Muppet. <laughs> that makes sense for the brand. But in terms of plot cohesion, everything was just everywhere. And it felt like the adaptations that they made to adjust the plot, it seemed as if they were being made to allow for the choices that they had already made, right? So Mm -hmm. making uh, Ben Gunn into Miss Piggy as Benjamina Gunn, who is in love with Captain Smollett, that requires a huge mess around because Ben Gunn is aligned with the Captain Flint pirate characters. So it has to be like Piggy and Kermit broke up Then she went and had an affair with Captain Flint. Then she went and had an affair with John Silver. Then she was marooned on an island. Then she used her charisma to seduce these problematic islander pig characters. Um, And because Piggy is sexy and functionally useless, they had to find another way to get a spare boat to the island. So they had to keep Mr. Arrow alive in the middle distance and sort of hold him in storage until he was useful for the plot but all of this revolves around the fact that they made the choices that they made it doesn't revolve around making it a better narrative completely yeah it feels like nobody really thought through what they were doing with this I just want them to like have brought the film to me I was probably eight or nine while they were developing this but I think I would have had some really good ideas for them and I could have just helped them fix the plot a little bit (laughs) use the Muppets in a better way maybe get rid of some of the really stupid puns that even as a child I thought were stupid and and dated and not good and brought it down to a much more lowbrow level than a Muppet movie should be at. I mean, and I think what Helena is saying with Piggy is just such an example of how they screwed this up so much by having her being unfunctional, by having her not really align with the pirates in the way that Ben Gunn does. And then also just the whole what the fuckness of the indigenous pig tribe that she is with, uh, which is very bad. And then 
sort of, I don't know if we were trying to slut shame Piggy for having affairs with Flint and Long John Silver, but I was kind of like, get it, girl. Tim Curry, was he wearing his, like, Frankenfurter stuff? Because I would be there for that. That was one of my favorite jokes in it, actually, where she looks at Silver and she goes, hello, Long John. It's like, okay, we get it. Tim Curry is a big dick. Yeah. Um, We need to spend some time with Tim Curry, but we keep mentioning this trope of the pig islanders. And I think we just need to get that out of the way. So I noticed in the opening number when it's this sort of like, oh, pirates, there's going to be murder. Dead men tell no tales. Woo. Shit going on. That there were these sort of figures that looked a bit like Moai statues. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So Moai are more commonly known as the sort of head statues from Rapa Nui or Easter Island. There are several in museums in the cultural West. They were big collected artifacts by British naval explorers in the early 19th century. They show up everywhere. Many of them sought for restitution right now and repatriation. They've also got this very specific existence in popular culture because of the way that they sort of seem very stylized. There are some Moai figures that are full bodies, but the most commonly seen ones that we have are just the heads. And they pop up in a couple of places. Like, they're such a classic sort of, like, silly gag in films in, like, the 80s, 90s, 2000s. There's a recurring bit I remember about one in, I think, it's, is it Night at the Museum? That one where, like, mm-hmm. it, like, comes to life and it's, like, obsessed with bubblegum and it speaks in the same kind of, like, weird pigeon patois that the pig and Moai figures in this are using. And it's this kind of... bigger kind of reference framework here but that very quickly sort of implies that we're in a south pacific context yes doesn't fit with anything else about treasure island no it's a really disrespectful trope for so many reasons it's deeply embedded within colonialism it's deeply embedded within the mistreatment of indigenous communities and the destruction of cultural artifacts and it's also got this kind of extra connotation of like ooh, it's weird and not fully human and therefore it's safe to make fun of as part of that as well we have the pigs yeah so when they arrive at treasure island and disembark they end up getting captured by this tribe of pigs who are styled like south pacific indigenous islanders and the Pigs then are like, we're going to take you to meet our leader, who they have called Boom Shakalaka. And so they sing this kind of weird chant of like, Boom Shakalaka Laka Boom. And this elephant actually arrives, like covered in, in flowers and decorations. And then it turns out that it is Miss Piggy or Benjamina, who has kind of become the leader of this indigenous pig tribe, which is just all around really problematic for, for everything. Um, and my, I mean, there, there's so many problems, but one of my notes was if we're going to go in this direction and add in indigenous people on treasure island which there are none in the book or in other adaptations but if we're going to do that why have we made them south pacific islanders and i was like what what's going on here and i started kind of thinking and i was like i feel like there was some kind of tiki aesthetic revival in the 1990s and i googled it because i was like this has to be it and it is true indeed there was something apparently in 1995 called exoticon that was like celebrating tiki aesthetics um which that aesthetic really is a post-World War II aesthetic that a lot of American GIs picked up when they were stationed in the South Pacific and in Hawaii. And and so, like, Disney, through their history, has appropriated tiki aesthetics. Um, there is a very seminal attraction in the parks called the, the Tiki Room. Um, in the Tiki 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 Room. And it's got a bunch of bird... Um, animatronics in it and then they also have a lot of tiki bars on their properties and they have tiki stuff in different ones of their films and in the 1990s yeah they have a whole resort called the polynesian resort um that does like luau's and stuff like that um so 
they now have a property in Hawaii called Aulani. So Disney has like leaned hard into the Hawaiian tiki vibe. So I think probably this mini revival of the aesthetic and larger culture in the 90s, plus all of Disney's investment in that aesthetic and their theme parks and attractions led them to be like using these Moai heads and using the the indigenous like look and aesthetic of the South Pacific is going to be good for us and is going to drive sales of other merchandise and it is so cringe it's very hard to watch and like just to be absolutely clear all of this is completely inauthentic all of it is completely like yeah 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 western culturally western American fiction like these costumes and stylings and actions and aesthetics are entirely made up and they're really racist yeah and this is why i'm like in my notes i'm like oh god we're gonna have to cancel the muppets and i feel like i'm i'm kind of (laughs) saying that as a joke but like this is a kids film but kids films have power and this kind of pop culture imagery has a bigger cultural impact you know because this is part of the normalization of this kind of stereotyping and the fact that we can just sort of take for granted that like there will probably be a very caricatured or very stereotyped characters in these kind of films stuff of this era like we just you know it's coming and it's really very embedded within media in the west and so yeah it's bad it's it's really fucking bad i feel like we are sort of well positioned having grown up in the 90s to recognize this as well because this like our era our childhoods were coming to the very tail end of like the time when it was acceptable to depict a generic indigenous tribal person wearing skulls Mm -hmm. around their body and grass skirts with a bone through their nose and i feel like this production leaned on that trope and said to themselves this is acceptable because we're depicting muppets and not human beings and pigs instead of people but everything about these muppet characters is coded within an incredibly racist set of stereotypes that by that period in the 90s we were already beginning to recognise was completely acceptable. And that was much too late to be recognising that anyway. And I feel like it's another level of problematic that these pigs in the original Muppet show are associated with pigs in space. Like, they are, like, sort of an alien pig tribe. Like, they're not... So it's, like, this other weird level of, like pigs in space becoming the indigenous tribe like they're not quite even of this planet i think there was a moment where kermit the frog is small it said something to the the tribal leader said something about like no we embrace people of all cultures and nationalities and i wrote this note that was like bah ha, 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 as if the brits embraced people of all cultures and nationalities <laughs> they did only it was to squeeze the life out of them and yeah. colonize them Oh my we should yeah. probably mention the other um, racist colonialist trope that appears in the pig tribe, which is cannibalism. Huh. Because oh, this, yeah. despite the fact that they are the wrong island culture and the general racial unacceptableness of their portrayal, I do want to give a nod to the fact that in 18th century naval culture, it was a very genuine fear that if you chose the wrong island to... I was going to say park your ship. <laughs> birth your ship. If you, if you birthed your ship at the wrong island for provisions, you could potentially encounter cannibalism. And there are even accounts of sailors who have been shipwrecked and um, cast adrift on lifeboats choosing not to put in at certain islands because they have such a fear that they could even potentially run into cannibalist tribes. Now, we know that that was an incredibly rare happenstance. It was not at all common for there to be any form of cannibalistic practices in indigenous communities. And very often, if it did happen, it was part of religious specific rituals which British Christian colonialists had no context for or understanding of. But it's worth acknowledging, I guess, 
in one of the very, very few nods to the historical context of Treasure Island that the seafaring members of the party are afraid of cannibals. Yeah. That having all been said, all of that choice was purely an excuse to shoehorn the Muppet, the Swedish chef, into the film. And I feel completely justified in saying that because it's in the script. Two characters turn to screen and say, well, how else did you think we were going to get him in there? And once again, you just have this effect that they have sacrificed all levels of plot logic to just shove as many Muppets into the cramped space of this film as they possibly can. Yeah, my note on that moment where they ask how else they were going to get the Swedish chef in, I said, oh, so that's the ethos of this film, huh? Right. And then then I was like, are the rats playing a Brechtian role trying to remind us that we're observers? And this is really just like a meta commentary on humanity's dark impulses and stereotypes. And then I wrote dot, dot, dot. Nah. Much like in Christmas Carol when they ask if Scrooge has a good guy inside. Nah. But I was just like, this is so bad. So, I mean, I think the cannibalism point is a super important one. I, again, this is something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, And the particular fear of cannibalism in the 18th and 19th centuries is so fascinating and so deeply embedded in the literature of this kind of time and context. There are far more accounts of sailors cannibalizing each other than there are of anyone actually encountering cannibalism from an indigenous community or population. And it exists primarily in imagination. So yeah, it's like one of the few sort of historical reference points in this fucking film, and it's a bad one. (laughs) Is it really bad that when you said that, I was just thinking, I would love to see a cannibalized Muppet. (gasps) Helen! I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That to me would be Um, a hilarious bit. So another thing that they do with this that really one of the reasons that I was like are the rats being Brechtian is that Rizzo decides to sell tickets to the ship at like a cruise. So the Treasure Island, the Hispaniola, it's now become a modern day ocean liner cruise for the rats. And uh, they make a lot of jokes about how the the rats are tourists. They're taking pictures. They talk about margaritas at the midnight buffet. They are on these little speedboats on like island excursions. And with this, they also managed to shoehorn in the elect- Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem, the Muppet band, uh, as like the ship's band playing music for the rats who are on the cruise. Side note, when Rizzo is selling tickets to the cruise initially, he has this little wooden chest that he's putting the money in. And I am 98% certain that that wooden chest comes from the American Girl Felicity Tea Lesson accessory uh, collection. So just look out for that. I'm pretty sure they're using American Girl accessories for this film. Um, but, uh, Ladies but, and gentlemen, <laughs> Abigail. Thank you. Thank you. But when they get to the island, um, the rats are having like a a feast on the island and doing a cruise thing and Electric Mayhem is playing for them. And at one point, I forget exactly the context, but Dr. Teeth says that they need to just play the music and stay out of politics. They're asking whether they should be on the side of Long John Silver or Smollett or something like that. And he says, just play the music, stay out of politics. And it just made me so irrationally angry because if you just look at Electric Mayhem, they are a political band. They are all based on really countercultural musicians of the 1960s and 1970s. Dr. Teeth is based on a New Orleans-based musician called Dr. John, who was like into voodoo and psychedelics. Janice is an homage to Janice Joplin, and she's also meant to look like Mary Travers from Peter, Paul, and Mary, who were a countercultural folk band that actually played at the 1963 Civil Rights March. Um, Floyd Pepper is Pink Floyd and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. Zoot is based on an Argentinian jazz musician. Like, this whole band is so political, and the Muppets have been progressive political characters since their inception and so just to have dr teeth of all people be like stay out of the politics 
I was like, Muppets, you, you are politics. Like Sesame Street had an integrated street in the 1960s that caused like huge consternation. Like the, this is this is what you do. Um, so I just had to go on that little rant because I was so pissed off about Dr. Teeth saying that he needed to just play music and stay out of politics, which is not what the Muppets need to do. But that does seem to be what Disney's ethos with the Muppets has been, is that they play the fun Muppet music and they don't they don't make the political statements they did prior to being part of Disney. Interestingly, Sesame Street did not go to Disney. That um, Henson. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see. I can. Yeah. I, I. I always wondered when that split was, and I can really feel that. I think in mm-hmm. in, in something like this. Yeah. Yeah. So, there is another musical interlude that it's worth mentioning, uh, which is a song about having cabin fever. Yeah. This is another bit of like weird racist stereotyping. Everyone's sort of like in vaguely cliche Mexican dress a lot of frills sombreros maracas kind of thing and like to be fair there are also bits of the song sung in other languages but the overall theme is sort of like cliche fiesta whatever the fuckery there's also um a line in that song that is this vessel has become a floating psycho ward right i mean there's a lot going on here that it's not it, it this this and this is the thing i think this is what we keep coming back to is that it's like this is like a bad cover band this is how I feel mm-hmm. watching this film. It's like it's playing all the hits, but it's kind of phoning it in. Like, yeah, you got Fuzzy being the weirdo, but it's like, we get the joke, it's old now. You've got the sort of silly, kind of hysterical, kind of hallucinogenic musical interludes, but they're not very funny and they're not very smart and they're also really racist. Mm-hmm. And you get these like little glimpses of what the Muppets could be <laughs> you know like the little bits of the fragments of its soul like abigail was saying like there's just no fucking soul to this and it, it feels like a bad cover yeah even tim curry who i love and who is great and who on paper is the most amazing long john silver casting somebody who manages to be both sinister and really seductive and charismatic like that that is tim curry and they just didn't give him enough to work with like there was a problem with the script because he in the in the book and in the other film that we watched the the tension for the for the protagonist is that on the one hand he has captain smollett who is nice to him and a representative of like english values and the captain of the ship and all this and on the other hand he has long john silver who is also nice to him but like there is a tension between these two um he has to choose between these two people and here he has long john silver who's charismatic but is never even nice to him there's no a reason why he should ever choose him or ever want to be around him because he's they don't they, they're never even given the chance to develop any type of relationship yeah they just like shoehorn in a little bit of about jim's father dying and then it seems like uh tim curry kind of makes up maybe that his own father died to try to forge this superficial bonding over the death of a parent because they add in that Jim has this compass that used to belong to his dad and Long John Silver grabs it from him early on and is holding it out over the ocean like he's going to drop it in. And Jim says, no, no, please, that was my dad's. It's all I have left. And Long John's like, oh, I'm sorry, son, and hands it back. And he says, what happened? And Jim says, oh, my father died when I was seven. And there's this pause where it feels like John is calculating. And then he says, my father died when I was eight. And like then like has like this moment where he like tries to connect with Jim on this weird level and and it just felt like manufactured sentimentality rather than what the book has which is sort of this genuine connection between the two characters that I felt like Jim in the book and even in the 1950 film had some real moral dilemmas that he needed to confront and face and this film really flattened out any moral dilemma that Jim had. I think that the production and Curry himself made a specific choice, and I can see why it was made. His iteration of John Silver is very glamorous, and it's very pantomime villainous. 
Mm-hmm. It's very much in the style of Captain Hook, and you can even see that in the sort of costume that mm-hmm. he wears, which is this sort of beautiful brocaded red coat, and he has ringlets of long curly black hair in a very Captain Hook sort of style. Um, and I can see why they made that choice, because Tim Curry is a glamorous guy, he's incredibly charismatic, but I think what is sacrificed within that characterization is the idea that John Silver is a manipulator and part of what makes him so effective is as a manipulator is the fact that he goes along and gets along as a jocular guy and everyone like gets on well with him he's one of the lads people on both sides pirate and captain hierarchy alike seem to He's able to manipulate them into thinking that he's a really great guy. But when Tim Curry is on the screen, he's Tim Curry and he draws the eye immediately. You can't help but look at him. There's a scene which really made me chuckle because it was almost frame for frame identical to the Mr. Arrow funeral scene from the 1950 Treasure Island of the whole crew done out on deck having a funeral for Mr. Arrow, except they're all Muppets and... Kermit the Frog is at the head of them with his tricorn hat held at his chest. But even in this huge ensemble scene where you have the massive ensemble cast of Muppets and human characters, the eye is immediately drawn to Tim Curry. There's like something about him that is so striking. And I think like Curry is an amazing performer, but I think that choice to dial up John Silver's glam to 11 means that he is a less effective long john yeah i also found that scene a little bit jarring because obviously kermit as smollett believes that captain arrow is dead and has gone overboard but we as the audience since they changed it know that he's actually just out in his lifeboat and and didn't go overboard and die and the speech that kermit then makes And the tone of voice that Kermit has to use to make that speech, because Kermit is being sincere here, is very identical to in Muppet Christmas Carol when Tiny Tim dies. And Kermit gives genuinely the most beautiful Muppet speech I've ever heard about how life is made up of meetings and partings. That is the way of it. I'm sure that we'll never forget this first parting amongst us. And that moment has made me cry since I was a tiny child. It's so beautiful and so moving. And I I, I think that it was almost a parody of that speech, having Kermit have to do this. And it really, I think, undercuts the power of the Christmas Carol in retrospect to have him do that. And I just really, really disliked that moment for that reason. I'm really interested in, here's a question for you all. What do you think the moral center or the moral statement of this film is? Because I feel like they were trying to go with a moral and I don't think that they really hit on what it was. Do you have an idea about the moral? So we talked in the previous episode about like the character of Jim and how he has lost his father and he's looking at all these like different models of masculinity and how to be a man. I think that because most of the central characters of the Muppets Treasure Island are played for comedic effects and have a lot of their sort of character potency dialed down so that they can dial up the laugh track. I think that a lot of that sort of moral and emotional nuance is lost. But what they seem to keep sort of passively hitting at different beats throughout the film is this idea that family is everything. So you have Rizzo and Gonzo as Jim's brothers um, and then he sort of deviates from them so that he's like drawn to silver and then at the end they kind of come back and rescue him and everybody works together because on ship we're a family um and it's this kind it becomes this kind of like found family narrative but something about it to me just thought that like the characterization of jim is so 
quintessentially 90s when you ca- contrast it with the 1950 version where he's like where do I fit within my society in the 1950s one am I an individualist or do I fit into a social hierarchy Jim has this number in the Muppets version that is all about there has to be a better life than here and it becomes like the quintessential I can live my dream and have my own exciting life narrative that has emotionally ruined a generation of millennials because (laughs) we were all led to believe by Hollywood that an exciting individualistic independent life is the way to go um And yeah, I think like the contrast between his dream of doing anything exciting at all costs and chartering a ship by himself rather than appealing to any of the adults in his life actively contradicts the moral conclusion of the film, which was like, we're all a family and we all have to pull together and work together. Like, nothing about it coheres. And I understand it's a kid's film, but kids are much more capable of understanding nuance than this film gives them credit for. Also, that song, yeah. all I could think of was that it was just knocking off the Santa Fe song from Newsies. It's exactly the same vibe. Mm-hmm. And the sort of like yearning for a place where I belong and I love adventure and I want to be, I want to be an explorer kind of thing. And it just like, it just, it was, again, it really felt like they were sort of like, let's just play the hits. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the moral dilemma of this film is that, like, if you're going to abandon your pig wife at the altar, you can't slut shame her when you meet her years later. Mm-hmm. I mean, she really just lived her best hookup life after he left her at the altar. I was proud Hot of her. Pig summer. <laughs> I really loved her, like, leopard print mini dress and sandals and feather boa action. Like, there's a moment where they're both dangling over an endless drop into the ocean and she's like wearing this like curvaceous mini skirt and I'm like get it girl looking looking great Piggy maybe the reason that they had to have Piggy like be this really weird small side part is that like Piggy would 100% out camp and out glam Tim Curry like no question yeah but where, where is the like hour and a half long prequel that's just their relationship <laughs> Like PG eighteen, <gasps> fully <Yeah>. explicit. <laughs> okay, um, look, I I do have to draw the line on this show. Like, there are many places we will go, but I do draw the line at like Muppet slash Tim Curry porn. <laughs> the aesthetic of this film is is very silly and very funny. Like Piggy's costumes are absolutely flawless. I think it's so funny that she gets caught out on knowing where the treasure is because she's wearing like a necklace made of Spanish doubloons, and that is just like genuinely delightful. Kermit's got a silly little <laughs> wig on the whole time. It's just like this little ponytail it is great. stuck to the back of his head, and it's so funny. And then in the fight scene, the kind of climactic fight scene, his shirt comes open and he has, I tried to take a screenshot of this, but Disney Plus are bastards and they wouldn't let me. He's got a pinup tattoo of Miss Piggy as a mermaid on his chest. (laughs) And it's just, it's, it's just so brilliant. Like there is just nothing that could make that more perfect. It's delightful. But yeah, I mean, I honestly even feel like Kermit was kind of wasted in this. Like he doesn't get to be as funny and weird as he's good at. Like he's always the straight man in Muppets Gits and stuff like that, but he has no one to play off against. And the one time he comes close to being quite funny is when he's doing his sort of like little sword tricks on Silver and like cuts all his buttons off and is like very fancy and stuff and then flings his sort of way and he's like well I'm a frog I've got slippery hands and <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> cute but it's not it's not enough like oh there's just yeah what a waste so of I spent I don't know like a good like 95% of this film very confused and I, I chalked that up to not knowing a lot of this source material so I just assumed that the Mr. Bimbo guy that lives in the hand thing was a part of like Muppets lore and just you just have to accept it but I spotted at least one other reference that was a quite that was a reference to uh, the Treasure Island text that didn't crop up in the other film. So in there's a song at the end where I don't know a Muppet is like dressed up as a ghost and then does the the marooned Ben hides in the forest and imitates the voice of 
the deceased pirate captain to scare all the pirates thinking that the, the island is haunted and there's a reference to that in the song and when I saw that I was like how are they assuming that people know the book well enough to to like place this reference or did they just not care they didn't care I don't think they cared yeah like I want to believe that there were people who were devoting themselves to good detail and Robert Louis Stevenson easter eggs and 18th century nautical easter eggs like I want to believe that was a thing I think that this film was probably very heavily clipped and edited to make it run to time because there's several little references and cameos and details that don't go anywhere. Like the fact that the the good guys suddenly start wearing jackets with a, a skull and crossbones patch with a, a line struck through it. Like I think that that was probably some kind of bit that was cut for effect. Because it's never referenced that they're wearing, like, anti-pirate merch, effectively. <laughs> um, probably there were people on this production team who did give a shit about pirate lore, but I just think it didn't make it. I think it hit the cutting room floor. Sarah, you were telling us that in a surprising turn of events, this was slightly more nautically accurate than the 1950 adaptation, which I would, I'm very I mean, curious just... about. Well, s- s- slightly. It's just that there's more uh, on scenes where they are in a uh, captain's cabin or any cabin. There's just more stuff everywhere. <laughs> uh, and I didn't, uh, because I love myself, I didn't like screenshot uh, and identify all the nautical tools, like navigation tools. So I don't, I can't tell you exactly what they were, but there are, there are examples of them sort of lying around. And, and there's also, there is a, a scene where... Uh, uh, Long John Silver like points to a star and talks about the uh, Polaris mm-hmm. being a fi- one of the fixed stars, and I was like, yeah, actually, these are references. I mean, and then it's like, oh, and they were sailing this way, and what does that mean? And like, presumably, they all know when they set <laughs> off which direction they're supposed to be sailing in. So, uh, but yeah, like, there's just there's just more. Uh, there's just more notes and if you're calculating using lunar tables which is what people would be doing most of the time at this point uh, you'd have to do so many calculations so there's just being piles of paperwork everywhere it's more accurate than in um, the 1950s where they just have a disused solar ring dial there's something so charming to me about the uh, the image of Kermit the Frog sitting down with his little tiny tricorn hat off in his shirt sleeves doing nautical calculations. That makes me really yeah, happy. It, it's so great. It would have been quite cute to have a little scene with him and like a, a nocturne and like aligning it with the stars and then writing it down. And then just picture how he would be puppeted to do those things as well. That would have also been very true to the original Muppet show because one of the sort of recurring Mm -hmm. gags is that Kermit's the kind of company manager and he's always in the back trying to like write the set list and like get everything together and do all the tech stuff. And Fozzie's always showing up with like silly little pun gags and like visual gags to disrupt him. Banana cream pies. Yeah, exactly. And there's all these like silly little recurring bits in the original Muppet show about their dynamic and about how... Kermit is just like trying to run the fucking theater and Fozzie's just like doing dumb shit on the side and that's very much their dynamic in this with Smollett and, and Trelawney you could have you could have had that reference there and again I feel like that's something that probably did end up on the cutting room floor that's kind of why I think that Kermit would have been like more fun to be cast as Dr. Livesey yes because in the novel Dr. Livesey is the street man character and Smollett is the charismatic order keeping captain and Trelawney is the chaotic idiot so like I could far more see Kermit as Livesey to be honest yeah rather than Dr. Bunsen Honeydew who's just sort of a non-event a non-event yeah yeah and he's like barely in it which was irritating to me because I think probably Livesey is like my favorite character from the novel yeah but they cast the most boring Muppet as Livesey and yeah, it's really annoying. And that, again, that kind of tells you about, like, the moral centre of this film and, like, how, like, the ideology around those characters sh- shifts away. Like, the character which before is sort of the stand-in for reason and the enlightenment and self-control becomes, like, 
this boring tinkerer with uh, various medical ineffectual devices and contraptions, which we will see again in a future episode on Treasure Island. And on that note, I think we're ready to wrap up this episode. Yeah. Thank you for joining us one more time. This was a weird experience, honestly. Like, Tim Curry's number about how pirates are actually good, but it just depends on who you ask, is, like, weirdly smart and funny and feels very out of place with the rest of the film. But it's kind of like a brief bright spot in this otherwise, like, entirely fucked experience. Yeah. And I'm sorry that we watched this. And Sarah, I'm so sorry that this was your introduction to the Muppets. Yeah, Go watch better Muppets. No. (laughs) Big slee, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we are on Twitter at History Friction, and you can support us on Patreon at Historical Friction if you want to know what we're up to and help us keep making the show. We will see you next week for Treasure Planet, continuing our Treasure Island mini-series within the pirate season. See you then.